Hello, I'm Barry Conway, the executive producer of the Epiongo Line, coming to you today from our production studio here on Mask Island, situated in Barry's Bay at the western tip of Kemeniskeg Lake. The usual crew you normally hear on this podcast are all taking a well-deserved summer vacation after having performed nearly every second weekend for the past two years under those very trying COVID pandemic conditions we now hope are all well behind us. Still, the show must go on, and so I thought as I sit here in the control room looking across the water at those four lackadaisical horses wandering the upper pasture at the old Blesky farm, it might finally be time to do something I've been wanting to do for a very long time now. Before I launched the Epiongo line back in May 2019, I had launched another podcast, one simply called the Epiongo Reader's Theater, which is no longer available. In many ways, it was a pilot or test show to see if there might be enough local interest in the two things I've always been passionate about, our local heritage and unique culture, up here in the upper Madawaska and Upiongo River Valleys. As luck would have it, and with lots of local volunteer help, I managed to launch the Upiongo Readers Theatre podcast on March 17, 2018, well over four years ago, and a year prior to the launch of the Upiongo Line podcast. And although we did use a number of those earlier 2018 scripts for the later Upiongo Line podcast, there was still a number of early readings we never got around to including on the Upiongo Line, readings that I believe are fundamental to understanding our local heritage and unique culture. So I thought during this well-deserved summer hiatus, when the many volunteer members of the Upiongo Readers Theatre Troupe are resting up and readying themselves for their return this coming September, I might reach deep into those 2018 shows and bring back some of those curious yet essential readings. Thus today we have four such pieces, all dealing with local history and all taken from those first Upiongo Readers Theatre shows performed in front of live audiences. Ironically, the first reading I have for you today is called On the Epiongo Line. It's a poem written in 1923 by Thomas G. Devine, a native of Renfrew who spent a goodly part of his adult life in the United States down around Kansas, but who in his old age returned to the upper Ottawa Valley only to see that much of what he had left behind here in his youth sadly no longer existed. Here's Karen Filipkowski reading On the Epiongo Line. On the Apiongo line, I drove a span of bays one winter, once upon a time for Houlihan and Hayes. The road was rough, the hours long, the pay scarcely a wage. The stopping place is none too good, but work was all the rage. How time has slithered nonchalantly to another page. On the Apiongo line, I walked beside the load as pulling hard, the team went up the winding mountain road. Whoa, lads, I cried from time to time with kindliest intent and wedged a stone behind a wheel. So steep was the ascent. Now trucks go up the hills in high, hell-born, hell-bound, hell-bent. On the Apiango line and the plug was chewed or smoked, and often both, by every second mug that shaved itself on Sundays or trimmed its beard so-so, Cigars were come by at the bar, the barkeep's treat, you know. Today the cigarette is tops and women steal the show. On the Apiango line, I used to light a match by scratching my anatomy adjacent to a patch. Then, weather-wise, I'd face a breeze that somehow always lurks in handy places at such time to give the flame the works. 
they turn the trick by lighter now when the contraption perks. On the Opiongo line, when men afield were dry, on hands and knees they drank their fill from spring or brook hard by, and got up feeling fine and fit to keep on mowing hay, or cradling grain, or picking stones, until the judgment day. They boil the water nowadays to steam the pep away. On the Opiongo line, the tongue of men was prone to wander off in broguish mood down bypaths all its own. The rules of English grammar it treated with disdain, as well became its ancestry, an ancient Celtic strain. Now, fore and aft, slang rules the roost, pert as a weather vane. On the Opiongo line they trotted out Shank's mare to go from anywhere at all and back to anywhere. A mile or ten or twenty-five, to them it was just a walk, to make in less time if they could, and that without a bulk. Only hobos walk today, and do they ever squawk. On the Opiongo line, not so much for the news as for the editorials, profane, profound, profuse, men took the party organ and read it by the clock. For editors were then indeed bellwethers of the flock. The news now comes by radio, as does the poppycock. On the Opiongo line, the drinker downed his grog behind closed doors and tight-drawn blinds and chewed cloves to be fog. The sleazy, sniffing nose that whiffs the embryo of glee a mile away and labels its rank in sobriety. Booze now holds up its head sky high and shouts whoopee whoopee. On the Opiongo line, the song of long ago was the all-ye setting for the fate of young Monroe. It never lacked an audience. It filled the tender eye. It caused the old maid's heart to heave the next thing to a sigh. Now jazz attempts to harmonize the discords of the sty. On the Opiongo line, the parish priest was boss, and for a project, by and large, was never at a loss. He put the women in their place, the men he stood on ear. He taught the growing girls and boys the wrath of God to fear. His counterpart today would be considered tonsure queer. On the Opiongo line, the fiddle's merry ring across the moonlit clearance meant a square dance in full swing. A truth of which the countryside was wholly unaware, though lass and lad for miles around were no place else but there. They rumba now to tom-tom in ways devil may care. On the Opiongo line men wore boots greased with lard, white stiff-bosomed shirt without a collar, soft or hard, a black suit with black hat to match when in their Sunday best, yet so attired held themselves no better than the rest. Now men dress up to look like boys and stick out the old chest. On the Opiongo line around election time, outstanding gents from Bark Lake down considered it no crime to keep tens and twenties if they gave the twos away. That grit and Tory sent along to limber up the fray. The buckos now keep everything, and not a cent they pay. On the Opiongo line, the folks at Fergus Lee played 45 and Euchre 2 with artful strategy. The same was true of Dacre, yet oftentimes the packs were held together by the spots, so worn were the backs. It's contact bridge they play today, and the quacks outnumber cracks. On the Opiongo line, Ted Casey fought Ned Strack, from Kerr's to Kitts at Barry's Bay and almost halfway back. By then they both were tired out and took a breathing spell. 
Shake on it, Ned, said Ted. Said Ned, hooray for Brudenelle. Today they exercise at golf, which is perhaps as well. On the Opiongo line, when Blue Mick Kelly died, Dan Burke asked Katie Dolan at the wake to be his bride. But Katie, in true shamrock style, refused to be heart-bound till she had time to look Dan up and find out what she found. They dash up to the altar now and later look around. On the Opiongo line, the loon called from the lake. The ducks flew low above the reeds. The trout leaped high to take the daring fly that came its way. The oat fields drew the deer. The partridge drummed along the road for all the world to hear. Now must the squirrel crack a nut with paw cup to an ear. On the Opiongo line that nature might defy, the hand of man to match her heart, she wrought in earth and sky. A perfect setting for Lake Clear, whose crystal waters spread in island-dotted splendor where Plant's Mountain reared its head. Who'd think of change in such a spot? Perish the thought instead. On the Apiango line, O sun make bright the day, O moon in cloudless luster light the night along the way. Now that the bays are dead and gone, and grim old age is mine, a phantom team and teamster start from Renfrew, rain or shine. I, dreaming I go teaming on the Opiango line. That was Karen Filipkowski reading Thomas G. Devine's On the Epiongo Line. Imagine being a teamster on the Epiongo Line, dreaming of better days long past. But were they really better days back then, as Thomas G. Devine would have us believe? Have a listen to another local lyric written in the 1850s about one of Robert Conroy's notorious lumber shanties along what was then known as the York Branch of the Madawaska River. That shanty was near Cumbermere, at what we now call Conroy's Marsh. It's read by Francis Mawson. Come cheer up, brave boys, it is upward we go, through this wretched country, the Opiongo. Come all ye gay teamsters, attention I pray. I'll sing you a ditty composed by the way of a few jolly fellows who thought the hours long would pass off the time with a short comic song. As it happened one morning of a fine summer day, I met Robert Conroy who to me did say, When you go to my shanty and draw my white pine, I'll give you good wages and the best of good time. For to go to your shanty, we do feel inclined to earn our good wages and be up in good time. To our wives and our sweethearts, we bid all adieu and go up to York Branch and draw timber for you. There assembled together a fine jovial crew with horses well harnessed, both hardy and true. All things being ready, we started away for fair Aylmer Town about noon of the day. The road led all mountains through valleys and plains, in a country where hardship and poverty reign, where the poor suffering settler, hard fate to bewail, is bound down with mortgage, debts due and claims. At a place called York Branch, where Conroy holds his rules, there assembled together his jackknaves and fools, an old Jimmy Edwards, that cutthroat and spy, would try to deceive you by advices and lies. Not long at the farm we're allowed to stay, but escorted by Jimmy we're hurried away, where Frenchmen and Indian, their living to gain, were abused by a brute. Jerry Welsh was his name. We read of the devil, from heaven he fell, for rebellion and treason was cast down to hell. But his son, Jerry Welsh, remains here below 
to work deeds of darkness, cause sorrow and woe. With the eyes of a demon, the tongue of a knave, these two villainous traitors should be yoked in a sleigh, and Jerry's old wench for a teamster and guide to tip up the brutes of the branch for to drive. At length we commenced the white pine to draw. It was Jerry's intention to put us square through, to break down our horses and show no fair play, and he ordered brave Jimmy to drive night and day. But the teamsters consulted and made up a plan, since fair work won't do, to go home every man. So we left Conroy's shanty and Jerry the knave, for true loyal teamsters ain't born to be slaves. So we are at home and surrounded by friends. We are thankful for favours that Providence sends. We'll sing our adventures and our shantying is o'er. And we'll never go up the York branch any more. Come cheer up, brave boys. We plough and we sow. And adieu evermore to the Opiongo. That was Francis Mawson reading the shanty Teamsters Marseillais. And not so much a purely original lyric as one curiously based on David Garrick's much more famous tune, Hearts of Oak, still used today as a regimental anthem of the British Navy. Our third reading today comes from a great little travelogue I bet not many of you are familiar with. It was written in 1863 by Reverend William Tomlin, a young Wesleyan Methodist minister who traveled these parts on what barely passed for a cart track. It's read by Danielle Paul. Having been appointed to accompany the Reverends Messrs. Mason and Curry on a tour to the Brudenell Mission, I left home and joined them in Pembroke on Monday, January 26, 1863. A natural fondness for travelling, a desire to see this part of our back country, a growing interest in our mission work in these parts, and the company of two of its pioneers, gave a charm to the undertaking. Our route that afternoon lay through the Alice Mission, most of its ground had been occupied by our missionaries only two years. Yet, congregations have been gathered, societies formed, Sabbath schools organized, books distributed, and the seed of a future harvest widely and judiciously sown. We heard of revivals of religion at two of its appointments lately, and we saw the hewn timber for the frame of a church to be raised in the spring. The mission lies south of Pembroke and extends into four townships at least. Indeed, it has no boundaries to the southwestward. After driving about 25 miles, four of which were over the surface of beautiful Lake Dory, we came in the evening to Eganville on the Bonshire River. We were kindly entertained by Mr. and Mrs. Luke, who reside here. From this point, Mr. Luke travels northward 20 or 30 miles to the Germans in Alice Township, eastward to Thorn Township in Lower Canada, 20 miles back of Portage du Fort, and southeastward as far as Arnprior. Mr. Luke is very popular and useful, and his congregations in Portage du Fort, Arnprior, and other places are very encouraging. But his labors are too widely distributed to produce such results as he desires. Mr. Wilson lives in Eganville. He preaches there as well as in Douglas, another little village 15 miles further down the Bonshire River, and in three or four of the surrounding townships. He was at Clarendon, attending missionary meetings when we called. A revival has visited this mission since conference. On Tuesday morning, we passed through Algona Township and struck the Opiongo Road just before it passes from the township of Sebastopol into Brudenell. 
two miles along this road, and we come to the house of Mr. O. F. Larwell, who has entertained our ministers most cordially from the commencement of the mission, and when it was difficult to find a house and impossible to get feed for a horse in the regions beyond. Here we dined, and, then accompanied by our host and family, set off for the missionary meeting in the English settlement nine miles distant. We kept the Opiongo Road for two or three miles, and then turned westward along what is commonly called the York Branch Road, but in Tremaine's map is known as the Peterson Road, which extends from the Opiongo Road to the Hastings Road. At the junction of Opiongo and Peterson Roads, is a small village situated in a tract of fine land by Roman Catholics. The Brudenell Post Office is here. It is the last such post office on the Opiongo Road. The land in the English settlement of Rockingham, whither we were going, is but little inferior. It has been settled about five years. In the evening, we reached Rockingham and found nearly a hundred persons assembled in a building close by a small grist mill near the township line of Brudenell and Radcliffe. Part of the company had come from Bangor, 13 miles distant. Mr. Arthur Acton, our class leader, presided, and a small choir gave us some soul-stirring music. After the missionary, Mr. Perry, and a deputation addressed the meeting, $7.50, chiefly in silver, was taken up. An excellent spirit pervaded the meeting, and the people seemed to be very glad of a visit from their old pastors. After the usual business was ended, a temperance pledge was circulated by Mr. Perry, and seven names were added to a list of about sixty. Efforts on behalf of temperance are greatly needed here. Taverns are abundant, and, only a day or two before, a stranger under the influence of spirituous liquor had walked into the Madawaska River and was drowned. We were made welcome and comfortable for the night at the house of Mr. John Watson, the proprietor of the mill. He was away from home, but from what I learned, he is an intelligent and liberal Episcopalian, and has shown himself very friendly to our cause in this settlement. Not far distant lives a lady who attended the Reverend Dr. Stinson's ministry in Gibraltar. Her father was a colonel in the British Army. At nine on Wednesday morning, we started again along the Peterson Road, westward through Redcliffe, and crossed the Madawaska River. At about eleven, we pulled up at Mr. Lake's in Bangor Township. Here we partook of refreshment and then hastened on to Mr. Perry's farthest appointment, a distance of fifteen miles and within one mile of the Tara post office on the Hastings Road. We were now about ninety-five miles north of Belleville and twenty miles back of the Hastings Road mission. At Mr. McRae's, Mr. Mason preached from Joshua twenty-four fifteen. The congregation was not large, but they heard him gladly. While taking tea at Mr. Glenn's, we received considerable information respecting the countryside from Mr. Robert Elliot, whom we had formerly known in Pakenham. We reached Bangor Township again about eight in the evening and found a congregation waiting in the new schoolhouse. A revival of religion was in progress here, and after preaching, ten or twelve persons presented themselves as seekers, and three or four were converted in that meeting. We lodged with Mr. W. Lake, the first settler in this fine neighborhood and a zealous member of our church. Next morning, after baptizing five of his children, we left for Mount St. Patrick, 50 miles distant, where we were to attend a missionary meeting that evening. We drove to our friend Mr. Larwell's for dinner, stopping on the way only to see the inside of a lumberer's shanty, which was to us a curiosity, though we had been for some time in this lumbering country. I should have accepted Mr. Curry, who had often seen such things. Speaking of curiosities, I might say that at Mr. Larwell's, 
we saw something in the way of backwoods luxuries, bear's flesh, beaver, venison, hares, partridges, salmon trout, and speckled trout had been gathered and stored up from the lakes and forests around. We tasted some of the trout and found it a real luxury. After a short religious service, in the course of which Mr. Mason baptized Mr. Larwell's son and daughter, we again set off down the Opiongo Road. Passing through Sebastopol Township, we had a fine opportunity for looking around us from the tops of the range of hills which here form the watershed between the Bonshare and the Madawaska River valleys. From one point, our view embraced a semicircle of about 40 miles radius. Golden Lake, a broad and beautiful expansion of the Bonshare River, lay spread out to our left, and far beyond, the Laurentide range of hills reared their snow-clad peaks and ridges, with the upper Alumet Lake lying sheeted and cold at their feet. The land in Sebastopol Township is very stony. It is chiefly settled by Roman Catholics. In places, there were traces of a violent tornado which passed over these hills a year ago last spring. Large patches of forest were uprooted. Shanties were unroofed and blown down, but no lives were lost. Toward the lower end of Sebastopol Township, Lake Clear, which lies along the north side of the range of hills, began to peep through the ravines and openings in the woods. At length, as we descend to the little village of Clontarf, a large portion of Lake Clear appears to view. It is the most picturesque sight of a kind that I ever saw. It is about nine miles in length and, perhaps, three or four miles in width. Its shores are beautifully cut into bays and promontories, and scores of little islets decorate its bosom. Its waters, unlike those of the Ottawa, which look as though they had been through a teapot, are so limpid as to fully justify those who named it. The village of Clontarf is the highest point on the Opiongo Road, which the Reverends Carroll and Mason visited when exploring this country in 1859. The next township, Grattan, we took tea at Garvin's, and then pushed on to Brougham Township, arriving at the meeting at Mount St. Patrick between 8 and 9. Mr. Huntington came over from the Madawaska and helped us nobly. The meeting was well attended, considering that Mr. Perry had come down the day before and changed the date of holding it for our accommodation. After that meeting, we drove for ten miles to Scotch Bush in Grattan Township, where, at one in the morning, Mr. and Mrs. McFarlane were up and awaiting for us. We had driven sixty miles that day, and for the third time that week, we retired at two in the morning. On Friday, we reached Pembroke in the afternoon, and the same evening, I arrived at Westmeath, having traveled two hundred and thirty miles in five days. Of the land through which we paused, I may say that... It is generally very hilly, with spring brooks and small lakes through the valleys. Some of it is rocky and incapable of being tilled. Much of it will present not a few boulders and pine stumps to hinder, when they may not prevent, agriculture. But there are large tracts of hardwood land which will soon repay cultivation. Our brethren on these missions should have our sympathy and prayers. They occupy an extensive and necessitous field. The Renfrew minister labors on the ground on which the old Bonshare minion existed for twenty years. The ministers on these four missions carry the word of life to more than twenty townships, containing an area of two thousand square miles and upwards. Their journeys are made over the worst of roads. Their food is not always the daintiest. To go to bed is not always to go to rest. Mosquitoes, black flies, and other insects disturb them day and night through the summer, and savage men more murderous still than they have more than once threatened and attempted violence. Their privations are not few. 
Their hearers, in many instances, are poor, and this year especially scarcity prevails over all this district, owing to the drought, the insect, and the early frosts. Many farmers on my own mission have to buy their flour and have little or nothing to sell. I fear there will be much suffering before harvest. One thing is encouraging. The collections at most of the missionary meetings in this district are in advance of last year. That was Danielle Paul reading from an 1863 diary kept by Reverend William Tomlin. Not too many people know about people like Reverend Tomlin anymore. They sadly have drifted into the fog of our local history. But that's part of the joy of the Upiongo Line and the Upiongo Readers Theatre. They are both dedicated to lifting that fog and finding for our mutual benefit and enjoyment those lost and often forgotten souls. Another one of those lost souls is William McIntosh, an early school inspector. Little more than ten years after Reverend Tomlin passed through Rockingham and Bangor, William McIntosh also made his way up through Bangor on his way to the Bark Lake settlement. It was the most westerly outpost of the Upiongo colonization road, having been established next to Skeed's Depot in the 1840s, barely six kilometers west of Berry's Bay. But listen carefully and imagine, if you can, that frontier world of the mid-19th century and that road less traveled by William McIntosh. It's read by Mark Wormke. I left Madoc on the morning of September 7, 1874. I anticipated making the stopping place kept by the reeve of Dungannon and Faraday that evening, but the heat and the long stretch of corduroys, hills, and boulder-strewn roads so fatigued my horse that I was forced to put up for the night at a point forty-five miles north of Madoc. Next day at noon found me at Lamab, the guest of the hospitable Crown Lands agent J. R. Tate, Esquire. The afternoon was spent traveling along the valley of the York River to Doyle's Corners, also known as Maynooth, where nearly all the land was seen to be of a very poor description. But the scenery in many places, particularly at Eagle's Nest near Bancroft, was magnificent. Maynooth is situated in a good agricultural district at the intersection of the Hastings and Peterson Roads, 100 miles from Belleville. It consists of some half-dozen houses three of which are taverns. To the north, on the Hastings Road, and about a mile from Maynooth, is a large but unfinished Roman Catholic church. The building in which I spent the night was a tavern, a store, and a post office combined, my bedroom being sleeping apartment, sitting room, and post office. My route next morning, September 9th, lay to the eastward along the Peterson Colonization Road, for some miles I was able to drive at a fair rate, the road being free from stones. This soon came to an end. Then succeeded the most wretched highway it has ever been my misfortune to journey over. In my innocence, I had thought that nothing worse than the Hastings Road could be found. But my acquaintance with the Peterson has convinced me that with roads, as with some other matters less tangible, Lower depths of wretchedness may always be discovered. At 2 p.m., I arrived at school section number 5, Banger. The remainder of the afternoon I spent in the school. In the evening, I met by appointment with the trustees and easily induced them to promise to erect, during the summer of 1875, a more commodious and comfortable schoolhouse. 
In accordance with this arrangement, they have secured, with the appro approbation of the ratepayers, a more eligible site and are now making preparations to build in the spring. A large proportion of the land here is good and heavily wooded with hardwood. A post office is kept by one of the school trustees, the mail being brought weekly from Renfrew County. On the morning of September 10th, I drove along the Peterson to Cumbermere, a hamlet on the river and 125 miles from Belleville. There, by the kind offices of a resident storekeeper, I was able to hire a lumberman and his canoe, the next 12 miles of my route being on water. Leaving my horse in charge of the tavern keeper, we seated ourselves in our frail bark and with its head pointing to the north, paddled up the Madawaska. For some three miles we made our way through the waters of this noble stream. At this distance from Cumbermere, the river suddenly expanded into Lake Kamenskeg. Surrounded on all sides but one, by shores which rise from the level of the water until they become lofty hills, whose sides are clothed with a dense forest of hardwood, it is one of the most beautiful lakes it has ever been my fortune to see. In connections with its surroundings, Kamenskeg Lake presents to the spectator the general appearance of a vast amphitheater, the oval-shaped lake corresponding to the arena, the wood-clad shores to the seating, and the podium alone being wanting. At the farthest shore of the lake, we left the channel of the Madawaska and entered Barry's Bay. Narrow, winding, very deep, and islet-dotted, it is about seven miles in length. Its shores are covered with a pine forest. Its waters, which are wondrously clear, are said to abound in fish. Long, narrow inlets stretching far into the land seem to be a characteristic of the Madawaska. At half-past one in the afternoon, we reached Welshman's Landing at the head of the bay. There I found Mr. James Whalen, one of the trustees of the school at Bark Lake, waiting to convey me to my destination in his springboard. Bidding goodbye to my guide and canoe man who returned to Cumbermere, I was driven up the Opiongo Road to the schoolhouse to visit. I had traveled over 125 miles of colonization road and water. The Bark Lake School is a log building. The roof is composed of basswood troughs. With the exception of the door, window sashes, and teacher's desk, the whole owes its construction to the chopping and broad axe. Floors, benches, and desks are made of planks hewn from logs. The interior I found scrupulously clean and ornamented with spruce branches. The windows were not extensive affairs, but were provided with curtains formed from newspapers. In every part of the province, this is a certain indication of a lady teacher. Sixteen pupils were in attendance, the classes represented being the first, second, and third. The order was excellent. The pupils apparently respected their teacher and were anxious to appear to the best advantage. The teacher is ambitious to have a reputation for success and is enthusiastic in her work. Possessed of a limited education, she has not, of course, the most approved methods. In common with too great a proportion of her fellow teachers in more favored districts, she has failed in some respects to learn what the elements of the best teaching are. The school, however, does not compare unfavorably with other schools in new and remote districts. Much of the Bark Lake School's success is due to the perseverance and intelligence of a few of the settlers. 
During the winter season, the Opiango Road, which passes through the section, is the scene of almost constant traffic. The supplies for the lumber shanties in the valley of the Madawaska passing up this route. A tavern, kept by my host, Mr. Whalen, is much frequented by travelers. Without a proper tax base, Mr. Whalen has adopted the plan so frequently used by children who raise funds in their missionary boxes by presenting them to visitors at their parents' houses. Mr. Whalen never loses a fitting opportunity for pressing his stopping place guests for school donations. And by such donations, as well as the voluntary contribution of settlers and the liberal aid granted by the Provincial Education Department, the school has been kept open during the past two years. A suitable supply of maps, tablet reading lessons, and apparatus has been provided, and even prizes have been distributed among the scholars. Another noticeable feature about the school... The scholars were, during my visit, both Protestant and Roman Catholic and in about equal proportions. All, however, joined in singing Oh So Bright, Marching Along, and another similar melody, their teacher accompanying them with the music of our concertina. The singing was not good, the instrument sadly out of tune, but despite these drawbacks, the whole thing was very pleasing. After dinner, I addressed a meeting of residents. The immediate result of the explanations of the amendments to the school law affecting such districts as theirs was that I was presented with a petition signed by the requisite number of heads of families asking to be formed into a regular school section. This document, together with an explanatory note, I forwarded to the stipendiary magistrate John Doran Esquire of Pembroke, who has since formally joined me in establishing a school section for Bark Lake. Its boundaries are as follows. On the south, by the seventh concession of Jones Township. On the east, by the line between Sherwood and Jones. On the west, by Bark Lake. And on the north, by the rear line of the free grant lots on the Apiango Road. The date of the formal establishment of this Bark Lake school section was October 14, 1874. At its first annual meeting, held subsequently, three trustees were elected and auditors were appointed. An assessment of the taxable property will be made this session. The trustees also promised to raise the walls of their schoolhouse some two feet and to put on a better roof. At 4.30 a.m. September the 11th, I commenced my homeward journey. Wearied of the jolting on the boulder-strewn roads, I took a different route, to some extent, from the one taken on the previous day. A chain of lakes the most northern being the largest and the middle the smallest, passes through parts of the townships of Sherwood and Jones. This chain is known by the name of Carson's Lakes. Between the largest and the smallest of these lakes, the Apiango Road runs. On the last mentioned date, I set sail, guided by another voyageur. The forenoon was spent in reaching Cumbermere, a route comprising two of Carson's lakes, a creek connecting them, and a portage of about a mile and a half along Greenan's Lake to Barry's Bay. The tedium of the journey was lessened by a recital by my canoeman, a genial and unsophisticated French-Canadian of the most marvellous tales. One prominent article of his creed was a belief in the existence in Carson's lakes of a sea serpent. I tried to laugh him out of this superstition. All was in vain. He had seen it. About noon, Cumbermere was again reached. The whole of the afternoon was taken up in driving to school section number two, Carlo and Mayo, 18 miles distant. 
For more than 12 miles, the road, or rather track, lay through a forest where neither house nor clearing was to be seen. That night, and the next two days, I spent in the house of the hospitable reeve of the municipality, where I was glad to find, to my surprise, an old Toronto acquaintance, a graduate of Toronto University, and a theological student in Knox's College. During the interval between the closing of one session of the college and the commencement of another, he was employed in ministering to the spiritual necessities of the people. On Monday, the two schools in Carlo and Mayo were inspected, and the night spent at the large farm belonging to the lumbering firm of the Conroy estate. A great part of Tuesday, September 15th, was occupied in driving through an unbroken stretch of woods, 15 miles long, between the settlement in Carlo and school section number 4 in Mont Eagle. Here again, there was no road for summer travel. Several times, I was forced to unhitch my horse and lift my buggy over fallen trees. To make matters worse, while yet but half over my journey, a pelting thunderstorm burst upon me. An umbrella lay in my conveyance but could not be used. The outspreading of arms of the trees would soon have forced me to close it, even had the nature of the road permitted me to guide the horse with one hand. About 3 p.m. I reached the schoolhouse in school section number 4, Mont Eagle. Very few children were in attendance. The next seven days were spent, with the exception of an intervening Sabbath, in visiting the schools I had not inspected in my journey northward, meeting with trustees, and in attending to other matters connected with my work. The afternoon of September 22nd brought me back to Madoc. Two schools left unvisited I have since inspected. My tour extended over 15 days. During this period, I inspected 15 schools, met with 13 boards of trustees, some individually in their own houses, held one public meeting, formed one school section, and traveled over 320 miles of colonization road, bush track, and water. That was Mark Wormke reading William McIntosh's 1874 school inspector's report after he had traveled to the Bark Lake settlement. Well, that about finishes our show for today. I hope you enjoyed some of what we have for you in our old Opiongo Readers audio vault, and thank you one and all for taking an interest in our local heritage and unique culture. Today's show was performed by Karen Filipkowski, Francis Mawson, Daniel Paul, and Mark Wormke, all founding members of the Opiongo Readers Theatre, and is dedicated to Peter Benner, also a founding member of the Opiongo Readers Theatre, but who sadly is no longer with us. I'm Barry Conway, the executive producer of both the Epionga Readers Theatre and the Epionga Line Podcast. And though I'm not Christian Marchand, our regular host, with her warm and soothing good day and God bless sign off, I will say, if you can't smile, try whistling a tune.